entering the Freedom Hut. Michael Cohen testifies on Capitol Hill, and we don't learn a lot other than Democrats suffer from Trump derangement syndrome, and they're looking to impeach this president under any excuse. Plus, the president's trying to stop a possible future nuclear war in Vietnam. If anybody wants to pay attention to that, we will. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. You guys are down. And it makes Says sense who? that there would Says polls, who? most of them, all of them. Says who? Polls. I just told you, I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? I want to apologize to each member to use Congress as a whole. The last time I appeared before Congress, I came to protect Mr. Trump. Today, I am here to tell the truth about Mr. Trump. I lied to Congress when Mr. Trump stopped negotiating the Moscow Tower project in Russia. I stated that we stopped negotiating in January of 2016. That was false. Our negotiations continued for months later during the campaign. Mr. Trump did not directly tell me to lie to Congress. That's not how he operates. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, you know, this is one of these days where the whole, the whole news media, the whole journalism apparatus in this country is uh, fixated, fixated on this Cohen testimony on Capitol Hill. I think a lot of uh, Americans don't pay attention to this, and, and rightfully so, because really, ultimately, it's just such a circus so much in one place that is despicable and disgraceful so many lies here yeah but cohen's a liar uh cohen is being forced to engage in a kind of self-flagellation uh kind of ritualized humiliation on tv for the amusement of the trump derangement syndrome mob Democrats get to grandstand, give these little short speeches about how this and that and democracy. And um, you it was one of these days where you also are reminded that a lot of people who are in Congress just aren't very smart. They're just not. You know, they just really wanted the job and willing to say whatever they had to say to get the job. But a lot of members of Congress are deeply unimpressive. But Michael Cohen They set him up to do this. The Democrats asked him to do this. He's got Lanny Davis, close confidant, consigliere to the Clintons. Lanny Davis there with him, and they're going with this whole, oh, it's a redemption story. Oh, that's right. Cohen just wants, he just wants to be a better man now. He's learned his lesson. Whatever they have to say, they're going to say here. You know, whatever they have to do to try to make this stick. And the whole thing's a disgrace. The whole thing is a disgrace. Um, you, first of all, have a guy who is the personal lawyer to the president. And he is violating attorney client privilege just because. 
There's no proof of any criminal activity between Trump and Cohen. And if they can't get him, I mean, I have obviously a completely different take on this than you're going to get from the mainstream media. If you can't get the president of the United States on something when you have his attorney for over a decade just doing everything that he can to throw his former client under the bus. I mean, all ethics, by the way, all sense of decency and propriety for a lawyer, all gone here. But they still can't nail Trump with anything. There's still nothing there. And they don't have anything on, on collusion. They don't have anything to prove the Russia hoax was real, that the, that the Trump administration... Could you imagine if we if we had had one lawyer close to Hillary and Bill Clinton for the last 10 years who decided to just straight up flip on them? I mean, give all the goods, you know, Hillary and Bill, they, they'd, they'd be going away for a long time. And even though the prosecutors, the Democrat establishment wouldn't want anyone to bring charges against them, it would be too obvious. There'd be too much there. If, so, if someone with access to what was really happening with Hillary and the Clinton Foundation and Bill, and I was just worth 800000 for that speech in Russia, or 500000 or whatever it was. Somebody came forward, the Clintons would be, would be over and done with and sent to prison very, very uh, expeditiously. But they've got the president's personal attorney coming forward, saying everything he can to try and destroy this president and... They're not going to have any charges. I mean, Cohen said, I'm ashamed because I know what Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man. He is a cheat. And yet he's a better president than Barack Obama was or or George Bush was or just go down the list. The country is doing well. I spoke this week even to some friends of mine who are uh, pretty agnostic about politics, but very, very knowledgeable about economics and finance because they work in those areas in ways where you have to be good at your job. I'm not talking about professors. I'm talking about practitioners. And they're saying, look, I don't agree with the president's tone, but in terms of what he's doing, in terms of uh, the way he's approaching capitalism and the economy, it's great. It's really, really positive for the country. So, you know, they can tell us as much as they want that Trump is a is a racist, a comment, a cheat. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is coming from a guy who is a, a known liar. But even more importantly than the fact that, that Cohen is a known liar, a lot of what the testimony did today was shoot down some of the craziest conspiracy theories out there about Trump. We did get Cohen on the record in front of Congress saying he's never been in Prague. So a very clearly verifiable part of the dossier that was used to get this whole Russia collusion farce going was wrong. Unless you think that Cohen's just sub subjecting himself to uh, additional possible federal criminal charges just for giggles at this point. But everything that happened today with this, all of the different, um, you know, congressional questioners and, and, and everybody who was, who was coming after Cohen, they're all part of this circus effort to try and create a, a, a basis for what we all know this is going to turn into, which is impeachment. 
They want to impeach this president. That's what they want to do. They want to impeach him, even if they realize, and I think the Democrats know this, somewhere in their little Democrat minds, they know that impeaching the president may help him stay in office. Impeaching the president may be a bad political move. I don't think the Democrats can help themselves. I think that they're at a point where they just feel like they absolutely, their base demands it. Their base demands that the president of the United States gets impeached. Uh, this is now, the, this is the, the, these are the wages of Trump derangement syndrome that we are seeing happening right now. Uh, Representative Green from, oh, wow, Representative Green, I talked to him this morning. That's interesting. And then he's on the, on Capitol Hill answer. But I think it's still going on now. I mean, the whole thing, I'll get into my broad stroke assessment of it in a second, but the whole thing's kind of a waste of time, honestly. Because even if they didn't do this, Democrats are going to impeach Trump. There's really no new information. There's nothing new to work with here. In fact, if anything, it just shows that there's, I mean, if, if Michael Cohen didn't know about collusion, are we really going to think that there was collusion? Who, who did know? Donald Trump just did this whole thing with Russia on his own, didn't, didn't talk to anybody, didn't. What a joke. Anyway, Representative Green is saying, well, Cohen's a liar, which we all know. Play nine. The Democrats have vastly limited the scope of this hearing. They've issued a gag order to try to tell members of this committee what we can and cannot talk about. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle claim that they want the truth, that they want transparency and fair oversight. Yet the Democrats witness to testify before Congress today is none other than a scorned man who's going to prison for lying to Congress. Let that sink in. He's going to prison for lying to Congress, and he's the star witness to Congress. If you read the sentencing report on Mr. Cohen, words like deceptive and greedy are scattered throughout that report. It paints a picture of a narcissist, a bully, who cannot tell the truth, whether it's about the president or about his own personal life. But today, he's the majority party's star witness. If the Democrats were after the truth, they'd have an honest person here testifying. Now, I think most of what Congressman Green there said is is true, except I would add this. I think Republicans, a lot of them today, didn't really do as good a job as I would have liked. I think a lot of Republicans were uh, were weak in their questioning here because they should have they should have seen Cohen as an opportunity to knock down some of the crazier things that Democrats still cling to about Russia collusion. Right. I mean, the, the fact that it took them as long as it did to ask a question about have you ever been to Prague, for example? I mean, this should have been asked a lot sooner. This should have been known a lot sooner on the record. This idea that. He was scorned, though. I mean, this came up quite a bit. People were saying that the issue here was that Cohen didn't get the White House job that he wanted. I would say even uh, even CNN and, and some of the, the Democrats were like, well, look, we all know Cohen wanted a White House job. That was well known. Uh, but that he would be doing all this because he didn't get that job. And some Republicans seem to take that approach. That, that's just silly. He's doing what he, he, Cohen is trying to trash the president today because he's going to federal prison. He wants some sense that the establishment will make room for him when he gets out, that he will have made amends in the eyes of the very powerful Democrat machine in this country. And, you know, he's trying to take some of the heat off himself as he goes, as he goes away. 
mean, this was his this was his throwing himself on the mercy of the left wing machine today. And the left wing machine has no mercy. So it's a very bad idea. But that's what this was. He's nailed on numerous federal charges. He's facing years and years in prison. They could have gotten him to say whatever they wanted him to say today. And that's pretty much what they did. This was a setup. As we know, this was the Democrats engaging in politics under the guise of oversight. There's no oversight here. They were asking him all kinds of stuff about Trump and his finances and his taxes. And this was just, they turned Congress today into one big oppo session. It's like they made Congress one of those mega panels of imbeciles over at CNN. You just get to hear all this different bashing of Trump. And yes, there were some Republicans there that were you know, trying to get better answers, trying to push back on this. But by and large, because Michael Cohen is the witness, you're going to get anti-Trump lunacy. And that was what you got. Not all of it went well for Cohen, though, for sure. Mark Meadows asked him about what he was doing with his foreign entities. And look, this is tough, right? Because we've got how many hours of a, hours and hours and hours of testimony today. But we're going to spend we're only talking about this the, a little bit the first hour of the show. That's it. We're going to move on to other things. This is not that important. I watched it today so that you don't have to. And, and it already no one's even going to remember this in a week. The Democrats will just refer to Michael Cohen's damaging testimony. He's a, Cohen could have showed up in like, I hate Trump. And all we'd hear for weeks ahead was Democrats saying Michael Cohen's damning, damning testimony of Donald Trump means that we must. We have no choice but to impeach. This is where all this is going. Uh, it was just mostly blather today. I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz at one point was asking, well, you can't prove collusion. You don't have any proof, but do you think it's like possible maybe that he colluded with the Russians based on you knowing him? That's asking a witness to just wildly speculate. Yeah. Do you think it's possible? You can't prove it. Do you think that this person is actually an axe murderer? I mean, there's no proof of this, but do you think, I mean, maybe can you prove He's not an axe murderer. Well, I suppose that's one way to go here. Um, there were some takeaways from this that I think will come up again and that will be uh, helpful for us to dig into a bit. We will certainly do that. We'll also talk about the fact that the president's trying to negotiate a deal that would help avert a major war on the Korean Peninsula that could have come as soon as, who knows, a matter of a few years based on what we've been seeing there. Uh also, Trump's efforts with China, how important those are right now. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening that really does matter. Uh, Michael Cohen talking about a payoff of a of a porn star is not one of them. But here we are. The, the country has been so, at least the people that believe the Democrats, have been, their minds have been so poisoned against this president that they can't help but latch on to every fanatical bit of Trump hatred that they can. We've got much more coming, team. Stay with me. I'm concerned about your lies today. Mm -hmm. Under your testimony just a few minutes ago, to me, you indicated that you had contracts with foreign entities, and, and yet we have a truth and testimony disclosure form which requires you to list those foreign contracts for the last two years, and you put N.A. on there. And it's a criminal offense to not have that accurately. So when, when were you lying, either in the testimony to me earlier today or when you filled out the form? Gentlemen's time has expired. 
Mr. Cohen, you may answer his question and then whatever you wanted to say on that. His, his, his question is, unfortunately, I, I don't have an answer for his question. Well, Mark Meadows is saying that there could be even further legal jeopardy at this point for Cohen, although I doubt anyone's going to. I think he, did, he referred him to the DOJ for you know, failing to fill out that thing about the foreign influences correctly. But, you know, Cohen's already going to prison, so. He has uh, he has nothing to lose here except, well, maybe shave some time off of his sentence. That's always possible. Although in a federal situation, you actually can't get parole. So if the charges are all federal, that wouldn't work. Cohen is not a particularly good lawyer. And this is I, I cannot skip over this entirely. <laughs> particularly good lawyer. He may be. I don't know if it's Cohen or Avenatti, who is the worst lawyer 2018. It's a a tough call, I think. Um, either one of them, you could make the case. But Cohen was asked, or he asked a very straightforward question, because remember, he taped Trump, which is a strange thing to do as well, because he taped him before it seems that he had this whole change of heart thing, right? I mean, you got Carolyn Maloney is saying, for example, that this is a story of redemption, that Congresswoman Maloney, play 14. Michael, can you suggest who else this committee should talk to for additional information on this or anything else? Yes, I believe David Pecker, Dylan Howard, um, Barry Levine of AMI as well, um, Alan Weisselberg, Alan Garten of the Trump Organization as well. Well, thank you very much for your testimony. And Mr. Chairman, this is a story of redemption. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, meanwhile, a story of redemption. Yeah, right. Cohen doesn't know if recording clients is ethical. Play 15. New York's a one-party consent state. One person can record the other one without it being illegal. Correct. But you also were a member of the New York Bar? I was, yes. How would you rate uh, recording clients in the ethical realm of being a lawyer? I know it's, it's not illegal. and I I'm not asking I if it's illegal. I'm asking if it's ethical. I, I, don't, I don't know. That okay. We'd have to leave and the judgment of the Bar Association. So... <laughs> Well, I think every other lawyer in here knows exactly where it is on the ethical standard. Highly, highly, highly unethical. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on radio, but I can tell you, guess what? Lawyers recording their clients as leverage against them, it's a big problem. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Wait, look, I got eight seconds. I got eight seconds. Um, what did you talk to Mr. Schiff about? I spoke to Mr. Schiff about topics that were going to be raised at the upcoming hearing. Whoa. Not just what time to show up, actually what you're going to talk about. The gentleman time that expired. Wow. Mr. Sarbanes. Hmm. It's almost like this is all a Democrat oppo exhibition in the first place, isn't it? I want to bring in somebody who can speak to the politics and also speak to what's going on in Vietnam, which is much more consequential than anything happening on Capitol Hill today. We're joined by our friend Tony Schaefer, lieutenant colonel. He is, of course, retired. He's vice president for strategic initiatives and operations at the London Center for policy research. Tony, great to have you all, my friend. Hey, Buck, thanks for having me. Great to be back on uh, and talking to you again. 
So tell me a bit about uh, just, you know, your, your takeaways today. W- what mattered from what was a pretty endless, repetitive and, and overall boring hearing, but from what you could see and from, you know, what, what should we care about from this, if anything? Well, I think the one thing that uh, kicked this all off theoretically, you know, but theoretically being the operative word is the Russian collusion issue. And I, I heard nothing uh, that relates directly to anything Russia, uh, other than a, an opinion that uh, you know Cohen had. And now, remember, this guy's a lawyer, so he's supposed to understand the, the basic tenets of the law. He had a feeling that uh, something was going on, and uh, you, you know, you and I and, and, and stuff we've done over the years. Uh, that wouldn't even make for a good field report, let alone, uh, you know, a, 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 a sworn bit of testimony. And secondly, you know, Jim Jordan, and I love Jim, he, you know, I consider him a friend, was, I think, doing the right thing, going through and trying to tear down uh, the um, narrative by the fact that Cohen lied. He got caught lying. He's been convicted. Pretty much everything he's been convicted of relates to his own personal deceptive practices. Uh, and that's the other thing that Jim Jordan, I think, did a great job. And other members of the Republican side did. They, they kind of showed this guy to be a complete fraud. And those those things, you know, that's the fact. And you've got people like Schiff, uh, Representative Schiff, whose primary objective in life has not been accountability or oversight. It's been trying to find something to disrupt the you know, president and what he's doing. And, and to me, today was a complete and utter uh, play, if you will. Good guys, bad guys, all about the politics, but wasn't one point I, I found from anything I've heard that resulted in any legal issue the president should be worried about. I, I think it was just a political theater. And in terms of impeachment, are we heading there regardless of whatever the analysis is from the left of today's events? I mean, I've always felt like they, they're willing to go there even if wisdom would tell them not to. I, I, unfortunately, I, I think that if people were actually looking at the facts and, again, following the law, looking at what is legal and not, uh, the, the issues which were brought up today by Cohen are inconvenient. And it's, it's the, uh, the old adage of making sausage. You know, the sausage making process is very nasty. Politics are very nasty, a nasty game. And everything I heard today had to do with the way the political game is played, what, no matter what side you're on. Uh, but not a thing rises to the level uh, remotely of impeachment. With that said, I think that the, the Democrat Party are completely committed to that being a course of action. And I don't think there's going to be any common sense or any facts which slow them down from pushing towards something in the way of some impeachable offense, even if they have to make one, out, make one up out of whole cloth. We're speaking to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer of the London Center for uh, Policy Research. All right, l- let's get to let's get to something that actually matters <laughs> to all of us, or, or should matter to all of us, which is the prospect for uh, a breakthrough with North Korea. President Trump's in Vietnam. Look, Tony, you and I both know that this is not just high stakes; it is uh, a difficult a difficult ask. It's a difficult right. thing to pull off here, no question about it. But, you know, how do you view where the president is on this so far? And and what are your expectations for what he realistically but successfully could get out of this? 
Yeah. Uh, I've worked this issue since uh, 1992, uh, when back when Jim Woolsey became director of CIA, and Jim and I are still friends, and, and we, we, we talk about this fairly often. Even then, in the 90s, uh, when we knew that they, we'd entered into agreement that they would denuclearize, they didn't do it, and we gave them stuff anyway. That was repeated under President Bush and again repeated under Barack Obama. Every time we've sought an agreement and given them, given them stuff, they've reneged. President Trump has stopped that. He's actually taking the approach of let's talk to them and make, maintain really hard sanctions, but give them an option other than simply trying to contain them. And the option here, I think, is a valid one, is the idea of creating an economic circumstance, uh, an, an enticement, if you will, for the entire country to kind of walk itself off the ledge. Uh, and I think uh, the strategy of doing this in Vietnam, which was a former enemy, now turned an economic partner, was a brilliant move. It's, it's kind of like the proof's in the pudding. Walk away from the bellicose language and behavior, and hey, you, you may join the 21st century. So I think that's the thing to take away from here. And do I, do I believe there'll be a, a huge uh, breakout or a huge event at this? I'm hoping, I, I'm sincerely hoping, that we'll get some indication that uh, we're going to end the Korean War, a war that's been essentially ongoing but on pause since 19, 1951. We entered into the armistice in 53. So uh, I do believe the president's doing a good job of, of really uh, pushing him to understand that we will continue to use military force if necessary. We're going to maintain sanctions as we are until there's some indication that he's sincere in, uh, in doing the things, complying with the things we're asking to do, primarily the nuclear weapons issue. Taking to, let's take the, the Trump approach off the table for a moment. Sure. Based on the glide path that we were on from the Obama administration beforehand, if yep. status quo had continued with North Korea, with the approach to North Korea, what did you see happening in the next five years? Well, I, I would have said two years, Buck. Look, uh, he was, uh, they were building uh, an effective uh, range of uh, ballistic missiles, very long range that could reach Hawaii. Look, I've met with Tulsi Gabbard on this. While the, the, the Democrat Party is anti-ballistic missile protection, she was calling for Hawaii to be essentially armed because there was a realistic a threat against uh, the, the, the state of uh, Hawaii. The other thing that I was concerned about is that they may do some provocative action of such as a firing off a, a high-altitude nuclear blast and creating an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and saying, oh, we had no idea that was going to cause damage. And under Barack Obama, based on his other lack of following through on threats, such as Syria, I think uh, Un would have had the impression he could get away with that, and he would have continued to push. So I think this is the critical departure from the Obama administration, is that President Trump has made it very clear, and I, and I do believe General Joseph Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has made this very clear in the language they've been using, that there would be huge consequences for any continued uh, pr provocation. And, and then the engagement that President Trump entered into, I think, has been another thing, which has prevented them uh, from firing new ballistic missiles. And I'm sorry, I'm one of those who – I do believe that they've got reentry technology for nuclear weapons. And, Buck, I mean – the, the, I don't know what the intelligence community is thinking, but it, it's not that difficult. It's all about ceramics. You can, if you can deal with high-temperature ceramics, you can create a reentry vehicle. So I, I do believe that that direction would have been sustained by UN and the North Koreans. They would have continued to develop weapons, and I think they would have had an eye on use in some provocative fashion to see how far, how far they could get away with something. Do you think we might have ended, have ended up having to take a strike against them before that? Yeah, no doubt.
Uh, I know for a fact we've planned these things since the 90s, but we've never followed through. But I do believe that he was he was inching his way forward, Buck, just seeing how far he could get. And remember, there was no consequences to the bad behavior. It's been made very clear that there will be consequences, and there's no doubt that President Trump would follow through with consequences should that behavior continue. So, again, it's night and day between uh, what Barack Obama, I think, and, and a, 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 frankly, a Hillary Clinton presidency would have resulted in. I think we would have seen some level of nuclear use by the North Koreans if they thought they could get away with it. Speaking to Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer here, uh, before we let you go, uh, Tony, sure. I, I want to ask you about Syria, something that's yeah. near and dear to my heart as a topic, but also as, as something that I'm going to be uh, talking about at CPAC later on in the week. What, where are you? What, what's your, uh, your, your sense of the decision to leave behind? I think it's 400. I've seen 300, 400, something like that in yeah. Syria. What is the proper mission set for the United States inside Syria? The primary mission set at this point is special operations and close air support to our allies, the Kurds, and the, the Syrian free forces we're working with. That's it. It's not our job to rebuild Syria. I think uh, uh, the primary mission there should go to regional allies and friends. Uh, we w- we've been working w- on something since before the administration came in called the the Arab NATO. It's now called the Middle East Strategic Alliance. The idea should be, Buck, that you know people other than us goes into the peacekeeping and, and stability op. Uh, the other thing is. You, you know, and the audience I don't think is going to be surprised of, uh, we had put into Syria as part of our going after ISIS, approximately, depending on who you talk to, between six to 8,000 American forces. That includes contractors and military forces. And simply put, they were becoming uh, essentially uh, mission creep. We were doing more than our original mission of defeating ISIS. Uh, and that's dangerous. Uh, we've seen that happen before in other nations. And I'm one of those who, I'm a Reagan conservative. I'm not a neocon. Uh, I don't believe it's our job to go solve every single world conflict. It's our job to defeat terrorist organizations, which leave, which are a clear and present danger to um, our, our interests, uh, our, our homeland, and our allies. And I think that's been pretty much done regarding ISIS. Uh, other things should be done to, to, to resolve the issue in Syria, but I don't believe for a minute that our putting in a large ground force, which H.R. McMaster was proposing and others have tried to push for, would be anything more than folly, as we've seen in other nations where we've, we've done that sort of thing. Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, everybody. London for policy research to see what he's up to and also on twitter t.s spooky or t spooky depending on t spooky <laughs> okay uh tony thanks so much for making the time man appreciate it hey thanks Mike. team we'll be right back here's what the u.s attorney said about mr cohen while mr cohen enjoyed a privileged life His desire for ever greater wealth and influence precipitated an extensive course of criminal conduct. Mr. Cohen committed four, four distinct federal crimes over a period of several years. He was motivated to do so by personal greed and repeatedly, repeatedly used his power and influence for deceptive ends. But the Democrats don't care. They don't care. They just want to use you, Mr. Cohen. You're their patsy today. They got to find somebody, somewhere, to say something so they can try to remove the president from office. That is correct. This was all a setup today, all an effort to just let the left air out all of its rage against this president. Oh, talking about his tax returns, his golf courses, all this stuff. What, what a giant waste of everybody's time. But if. 
you're consumed with anger at this president for taking away what the left believed was rightfully Hillary's, the power of the presidency itself, I guess any opportunity to vent that fury is something that you jump at. And so here we are. Keep in mind that it is still believed that next week, now once the president's back from Vietnam, but next week there will be a, a Mueller, you know, the Mueller probe will essentially end. There will be a report that we may or may not get to see some parts of, all of, I don't know. But you could tell that there's already a bit of a, of a preview of how the left is going to treat that report. Because today people were saying things. I was looking at the analysis from the blue check journo types. Oh, Trump. Trump had advance word of WikiLeaks. Advance word of WikiLeaks. No, that's not true. That's not true. If you look, WikiLeaks was before the Trump Roger Stone conversation supposedly happened about contacting WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks had already tweeted out from its official account that they were going to drop emails about Hillary and, and Bernie and on all of that. So th that was already out there. These were rumors that people were hearing for quite a while during uh, during that period of time. And it was widely known that the WikiLeaks was going to drop something. And people had a pretty good idea of what that was. But the misreporting from journalists is not something that they ever think they're going to be held to account for. They're not going to be punished as long as it hurts Trump. This is all a hurt Trump operation. That is what they were trying to do today. That was the whole purpose of this. And that's also why you can tell based on the Democrats who were involved that this really is a Clinton. This is this is Hillary's revenge in a sense. Jim Jordan actually spoke to this when he went after uh, Elijah Cummings a little bit in the hearing. Play clip five. Mr. Chairman, your chairmanship will always be identified with this hearing. And we all need to understand what this is. This is the Michael Cohen hearing presented by Lanny Davis. That's right. Lanny Davis choreographed the whole darn thing. The Clinton's best friend, loyalist, operative, Lanny Davis put this all together. You know how we know? He told our staff. He told the committee staff. He said the hearing was his idea. He selected this committee. He had to talk Michael Cohen into coming. And most importantly, he had to persuade the chairman to actually have it. This might be the first time someone convicted of lying to Congress has appeared again so quickly in front of Congress. Certainly, it's the first time a convicted perjurer has been brought back to be a star witness in a hearing. Jim Jordan going for it today. Uh, you know, obviously he didn't have a blazer on because he's Jim Jordan, so no suit jacket for Jim. But he's making some very important points here, which is that this was all just about politics today. And, and it tells you a lot about the the new Democrat majority, that, that this is the hearing that they want to have. You know, one thing that was surprising, Ocasio-Cortez got her shot to ask Cohen questions. It was she didn't ask him anything, really. It was a very maybe she just realized better not to give the right a viral meme of her stupidity for the week. I, I think that may have been a part of it. Because there was nothing memorable about her questioning. But really, today's hearing, there was very little that was memorable, period. Uh, we're going to switch topics for the rest of the show, folks. I'm not going to sit here and keep going, oh, and then an hour three, and then an hour five. And, you know, Cohen's a liar. He hates Trump. He's saying bad stuff about Trump. No one thinks that Trump is perfect, but Trump did not collude with Russia. Trump is not a Russian stooge. He's not some arch criminal. This is all bull crap. We all know it. And, you know, Democrats maybe should focus on making a real argument instead of, 
trying to rely on the exploitation of the law and the abusing of prosecutorial powers and investigative authority to do what they can't accomplish, despite the vast propaganda networks that are at their disposal. Right. So I, I wish that they would just back off the lawfare a little bit, but that's going to continue on with this president. There's no question about it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the North Korea situation. And uh, then I've got, remember when the 10 year olds were lecturing Diane Feinstein? I spoke to the founder of that movement today. And I asked her some questions that you're going to want to hear the answers to like, Hey, person that now runs a national movement, mobilizing for climate change action. Do you really think that 10 year olds understand this stuff? Do you think that 10-year-olds should be able to vote in elections? My friends, you will want to hear that exchange. It is coming up. Some folks, when they think of senior organizations, AARP comes to mind right away. But you know what doesn't always come to mind for even those folks? That AARP is pretty left-wing. It is all about progressive causes and fought tooth and nail for Obamacare and does not believe in securing our southern border. That's why for seniors, I recommend AMAC. AMAC was founded by an Air Force vet, and it's an organization that shares your values. AMAC also gets you great discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, and much more. But if you want the conservative alternative to AARP, AMAC is your answer. Join the over 1.5 million patriotic Americans who are already part of AMAC. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The fear is that he gets into a bad agreement to make big news and hopefully, in his mind, distract the public from what Michael Cohen is saying. Michael Cohen is on Capitol Hill. How could that impact the negotiations we see in North Korea? What could we see the president give away? There is a great wariness that this president would give away the store. The president's just looking for good press. And he figures another photo op might do that. And the president's lack of seriousness, lack of preparation, and lack of groundwork when he goes into these summits. The president can't be too naive or too eager to reach a deal that gives him that photo op. The president could make an impulsive comment that would give away more than he, his team, is planning. The president always gets left naked at a poker table because he doesn't negotiate to save his life. The president declaring his love affair, essentially, with Kim Jong-un. How does that lay the groundwork for negotiations? Yeah, they're really rooting for President Trump to avert a possible nuclear nuclear exchange, aren't they? Nuclear war, folks, that's what it would be. North Korea fired off a nuke at somebody, us or one of our allies, retaliation would be nuclear and would eliminate North Korea. Millions and millions of people would be dead. If there's one area where you would think perhaps, just perhaps, there would would be a chance for uh, people putting aside partisan affiliation and just hope for the absolute best, it would be on averting a nuclear war, but libs won't do it. Libs won't do it. In fact, they, they'd much rather have us talk about hush hush money payments to porn stars and bizarre 
conspiracy theories that Democrats trotted out into uh, into all this and um, they, rather that, you know, about Trump that they trotted out into all this. And it's just so indicative of the degree of Trump derangement syndrome that they're willing to ignore or downplay the news out of Vietnam right now, where you have a president who's trying to negotiate an end to uh, a, a war that's been going on since 1953, a nuclear threat that's only increasing with time. I mean, he, here's the truth of the situation on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, it's bad and it's going to get worse. Trump is trying to stop that from happening, but that was the trajectory. You know, there are nine nuclear states in the world. North Korea is by far the most aggressive, the most psychotic, the most troublesome. And nukes represent the absolute pinnacle of military force. So you look at Kim Jong-un and understand that his entire regime is force. So getting him to give away his trump card, pardon the pun, is going to require something near a miracle, but it's a miracle that everybody should want. Everybody should want it. Kim Jong-un has seen what happens to countries that don't have nukes. Saw what happened to Saddam. Saw what happened to Gaddafi in Libya. You think that that doesn't factor into his calculation? Sure. I, see, he sees what happens probably if he pays close enough attention in Ukraine. Ukraine, after the Soviet Union dissolved, had a lot of nukes. Because the Brits and the Americans, and yes, the Russians, promised to defend their territorial integrity. And the Russians obviously lied, and we won't do anything really about it. But North Korea is currently an existential threat to South Korea. And it's just a matter of time if we're not there already. It depends on whether they could hit Hawaii or Guam or you know how far their nuclear missiles would really be able to go. Just a matter of time, though, before they are a threat to the U.S. homeland. And the more you also understand about this regime, the more you realize that it's going to take time to de-escalate. It's not just like you sign a piece of paper. You know, Trump is going to get an agreement, hopefully. We'll find out tomorrow. The agreement will lay out some steps. If it has verification procedures in there, that would be you know, really positive and, and certainly move in the right direction. But the entire ideology of the North Korean state has been about preparation for a war with us. That's what they get up every day and the, the leadership, this is what they're thinking about. This is what their whole regime is geared toward. So w when you understand that much and, and you look at what they've been willing to do in order to get to their nuclear status. You know, keep in mind, yeah, North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world. There are over 200 countries. North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world, but it's one of nine that has nukes that we know of. So when that country says that they are in the final stage of preparations for an intercontinental ballistic missile um, and is trying to build the capability for a preemptive strike which is what Kim Jong-un has said, you, you need to pay attention to that because they've sacrificed a lot. Their people have literally starved so that they could build these nukes and this enormous military and, and this concentration of force in the hands of the state. And yes, the administration has put smart sanctions into place. China has taken a stronger approach to North Korea 
than on, on at any time, and certainly the recent past, perhaps on any time ever. They've banned coal imports from North Korea. for uh, They did that in 2017. But when you look at what North Korea has done, I mean, they, at least eight times in the past, they either said they would not pursue or then abandoned, or essentially they lied about their nukes, their nuclear program, and and we've seen them to be the dissemblers on the world stage that they are. Also, and here's another problem, and this is why the Obama approach, whether it's Iran or North Korea or anywhere, isn't going to get it done. Concessions with North Korea don't work. Concessions don't work. So what do you do? You have to have the credible threat of force, which Trump has, and then a way forward that benefits the North Korean state and people. That's why Trump's talking about a better economy. That's why he's saying that they have tremendous upside here if only they could change some things around. It's not because he's some guy who's in in the pocket of the North Korean state or he, you know, he loves Kim Jong-un. And people make fun of the way the president talks. Where did Obama get with North Korea? Where did all of, you know, all of the luminaries of the foreign policy elite, where, where did they get with North Korea? The answer is nowhere. The answer is nowhere. I mean, the, the demands that the North Koreans have made in the past have been absolutely ludicrous. That's because they figured that they could get away with it because in many cases they did. You know what the Obama administration's approach to North Korea was? Just, just to remind you all. Remember, in Libya, the Obama administration said that they were going to lead from behind. And that was um, among the greatest Obama-isms of all time. We all knew... We all knew what that meant, you know, leading from behind. But the Obama administration had an equally insightful and laughable slogan for what they were trying to do with North Korea, which is, quote, strategic patience. You know, if they're, this is like advancing in reverse. I mean, this is almost an oxymoron. Strategic patience. You mean not doing anything. You mean not taking any particular action. Also, the negotiation with China, let's understand that factors into all this too. You have to think the same way that anyone who understands Afghanistan knows that it's what they started to call AFPAC. That's what the cool kids call it, Afghanistan, Pakistan. The same way that if you want to deal with Afghanistan effectively, you have to know that you're always dealing with Pakistan and also Iran and Turkmenistan and, you know, uh, Uzbekistan and countries to the to the north of Afghanistan, uh, but particularly Pakistan, you have to understand these are a related problem set. Well, North Korea and China are a related problem set. China provides 90% of the economic activity of North Korea. All right. So when China decides to crack down on North Korea, that really matters. And by being willing to have economic sanctions against or take economic actions against China in order to get them to deal more fairly with us, there's also, of course, the opening in these negotiations to get them to take more action on North Korea. So, you know, the the, the people that are laughing at Trump and mocking him on this, uh, he's got his hands full. There's no question about it. But he's also tackling a problem that didn't just bedevil, bested previous administrations full of people that were supposed to be brilliant geostrategists, 
the the best of the best and and it did this now for the clinton administration uh, north korea schooled the clinton administration the bush administration the obama administration trump is taking a different approach i just wish that we could get the country on the same page here you know democrats instead of just being so obsessed with the the latest from michael cohen oh what does cohen have to say about this you know how how is how is cohen going to be useful for our efforts to try and tear down this president maybe they should focus in on how could we maybe give helpful advice to the president to get some kind of a deal here and a deal that would also be helpful for other negotiations that are underway or, or and also will be underway in Asia in the future. Remember, the Obama administration said they were going to pivot to Asia. That pivot never really happened. Trump is pivoting to Asia. He is looking at what's happening in that part of the world, which is where you have the greatest explosion of population and wealth and and uh, technological dynamism. And he's taking this on. So I'm not saying it's perfect. I don't know if this agreement he's going to get, assuming he even gets an agreement, is going to be as wonderful as I'm sure the White House is going to say it is. But it's something and it's serious and direct talks. Now that you look back at this, the previous conventional wisdom here was that sitting down with Kim Jong Un was a terrible idea. It would legitimize her. How are we ever how are we ever going to break the stalemate without having somebody at the president, you know, the president, I was somebody at the presidential level, having the president talk to the leader of this country that has been such a problem for the international community for decades. You know, how are we ever going to get there? We're going to back, we think we're going to have a back channel discussion with North Korea to get them to give up their nukes. Given the nature of this regime, I just think that was never going to happen. Uh, it was never going to happen. This is this is the hardest diplomatic challenge that Trump could have or anyone could have coming into office right now. And I think the president deserves our best wishes and, and honestly, our prayers on this one. Morning coffee is an American institution. That's why I kick off every day the same way with a delicious cup of Black Rifle coffee. I put those K-cup rounds right in my machine, bam, and I make it happen because Black Rifle helps me get it done. You know, Black Rifle is also a fantastic company founded by special operations vets, and they give a portion of their sales to first responder and veteran causes. Oh, plus the coffee is delicious, and I'm somebody that gets really into their coffee. Black Rifle coffee is roast to order, guaranteed fresh when delivered to your door. And oh, that's right, it's also super convenient. They will send it right to you. You don't have to worry anymore about when or where you're going to get your coffee. All right, while liberals threaten to further tax your hard-earned money with their socialism, Black Rifle is fueling the fight for freedom by upping their offer to 20% off. Take advantage by visiting blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Get 20% off your entire order. Again, that's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. The Democratic Party has lost any sense of patriotism, any sense of balance, any sense of propriety. Uh, and, and you would think when you when you deal with something like the Korean War, the nuclear weapons in North Korea, the potential to maybe get a breakthrough, it might work, it may not work, but boy, it's sure a courageous step. The bitterness, the, 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 the hatred, frankly, is so deep that they can't see beyond their own uh, fratricidal warfare. Uh, very dangerous for the country, I think. 
I didn't even know Newt agreed with me, but Newt agrees with me, so there's that. Mr. Gingrich himself, the speaker. You know, I'm not somebody that likes the whole, oh, we're going to keep people's titles going forward even when they don't have that title anymore. It's not a Newt, it's not a Newt criticism. It's just I hear people, oh, Speaker Speaker Gingrich. No, no, he's now just he's now just Newt. Newt, Newt loot. What's up, Newt? Uh, I do not think we should call people speaker or leader or any of these things when they do not have that title. Uh, I do not think these titles should be kept in perpetuity. I do not think they should be inherited. I, I'm I'm not in favor of any. Of it. Anyway, on the Democratic Party, yeah, this is this is what you see happening. There is an an obvious uh, an obvious rooting for failure in North Korea because imagine how lib heads would explode, explode if Trump, the hush money to porn star paying vulgarian who doesn't, you know, doesn't like fine cuisine and orders his steaks well done with ketchup on them and all these things that who likes fast food hamburgers, all this stuff that the media just despises about him. If that guy, if the brash builder, billionaire, abuse that alliteration, Buck, from Queens was able to get an agreement that would be the single most momentous diplomatic national security accord in the post, uh, post-Cold post War era, since the Berlin Wall came down. What would they say then? Because you know what would also happen, and this 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 lingers in the minds of a lot of people, they would look bad. The Obama team that still thinks that they're good at foreign policy, even though Obama's foreign policy was just all all wrong. It's basically all wrong. Just one one stupid decision after another, one failure after another. Every place that was a challenge was made worse under Obama's time in office. Every issue Obama faced, he handled uh, poorly on the on the global stage as much as everyone likes to say oh obama sounded so presidential I'm like, yeah he gave a lot of speeches that nobody remembers now where the whole point was just listen to how eloquent obama is and not are we going to change anything trump came in to change things trump on, on the world stage trump came in with a different philosophy about how america should see itself and how america should interact with other countries in the world stage there's going to be a level of disruption there there's going to be a level of discomfort what I think keeps a lot of the D.C. where I'm broadcasting to you from here in the swamp, what I think keeps a lot of the D.C. intelligentsia on edge is the possibility that Trump may get all this right. That Trump may, in fact, manage to do what neither Obama nor Bush nor Clinton was able to do. And then what are they going to say? How are they going to explain that to themselves? What will what will the, the line of attack be if, in fact, there are verifiable inspections of nuclear facilities in North Korea and that we are moving toward a true and lasting peace on the Korean peninsula? I'm not saying it is likely. I'm saying that would be amazing and it's worth trying. And those who will compare it to what happened with Obama in Iran, I would just say, we, we are not we are not we are not giving Kim Jong-un anything. We're giving him the opportunity to come clean with Iran. We said, oh, here's a whole lot of money and here's a guarantee. We won't strike your facilities and you can keep all the know how and all the stuff you want. We saw Israel's presentation about all the Iranian 
nuclear program information they had and those libraries full of information they've kept. Obama was essentially, how do we bribe the Iranians so that so that we don't have to do anything about their nuclear program right now? Trump is just saying to Kim Jong-un, all the sanctions are in place. You can either join the community of nations, slowly but surely, or you can roll the dice and see what we decide to do if you keep testing your missiles and being a threat in the region. So we will see how this shakes out. I think tomorrow we're supposed to get word from Trump himself. Although Trump's going to be at CPAC, I think, on Friday. So who knows? I might, I might see the Trumpster. Maybe I can get a few minutes to talk to Mr. Trump himself about this. We'll see. Uh, obviously, security is going to be a little tight backstage. Uh, those of you are going to be in the D.C. area, especially if you are Team Buck Campus, you're going to be at CPAC. Definitely come find me. I'll be there tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. So I'll be wandering around. Come say hi. We'll be right back. I've been struck a couple times by the denial of humanity of many of these families and children. Um, when the issue is framed as an invasion by aliens, and when uh, we refer to children as UACs, um, it's easier to pretend they're not human or, or worthy of compassion. This hearing is a recognition and an insistence that on that humanity, um, a recognition that the Flores decision also addressed, and a recognition that just following orders is no more an excuse today than it was uh, back in Germany. Wow. Look at that. That was... Oh, the Democrats. You, you just... This stuff is amazing. Mary Scanlon there, Democrat, of course, right? Making a pretty clear comparison to Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Enforcing, which is in the name of the organization. Enforcing the law on immigration saying that that is similar to what the Nazis did. You know, that the Nazi... And, and this is really a reference, and I, I doubt Representative Scanlon even knows his history, but uh, the Nazis who were tried at um, Nuremberg and and just in general, this was the defense you'd hear, was that they were just following orders, right? And this this echoed throughout history with, well, if you're doing evil and just following orders, you're still doing evil. But this tells you what the Democrats really think of law enforcement agencies. One of the more remarkable turns that we've seen is that the same left-wing progressives who spent years, years under the Obama administration just tearing down law enforcement and tearing down the law enforcement that most Americans know is the most necessary to their day-to-day -day lives and does the most good for their community, which is local law enforcement, cops, police officers. The Democrats were slandering police officers, slandering local you know, sheriff's offices and uh, local police, state police, because it suited a narrative, uh, a narrative of the movement Black Lives Matter, that there were young African-American men who were being murdered for reasons of, of racism, by police departments across the country. And when you would look at the numbers, you'd see this is actually a very, very rare occurrence. I'm not saying it does not happen, but it is a rare occurrence. And 
yet it became a, a central uh, a, a central theme of part of the Obama second term. Black Lives Matter was probably the best known political movement of Obama's second term. Yeah, this this also as an aside, I, I spoke to a a longtime local reporter in Chicago. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she came on Rising earlier this week. And I, I we sometimes we have segments where we just have to cover the news and you know, I've talked to a lot of libs and whatever, but she she was there to tell us about the mayoral race, where I believe now two uh, female African-American candidates are in a runoff, was the end result. Um, but the you know what? I should actually probably tell you the names before I go much further here. Uh, but I asked her, you know, people know that Chicago has quite a problem with, with violence. Um, and the problem with violence is mostly on the south and west sides of the city. Uh, former federal prosecutor Lori Lightfoot and Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. They are going to be in an April 2nd runoff in Chicago. So there you go. Um, but I, I asked this longtime Chicago local news reporter, I said, what are the mayoral candidates offering about how to deal with the Chicago homicide rate? You know, what are they saying about how they're going to tackle that? And it was amazing. 600, wow, 650 people were killed in Chicago in 2017. That is, that is astonishing. Or was that seven, uh, I'm sorry, 762 murders in 2016. By way of comparison, New York City, I think, here I'll find out, New York, New York, Homicide rate uh, in 2017. New York, which is four times the size of San Francisco, I mean, of uh, Chicago, had, what's the total number here of homicides? It's a couple hundred. I can't find the exact number right now, but fewer than 300 homicides. So Chicago is a fourth the size of New York City by population. New York is 8 million. Chicago is about 2 million. And Chicago had more than double the murder rate in uh, 2017. Okay, so they got a big problem with murder there. I ask, I ask this reporter about it, though, and she immediately, because she knows that you know, this is not, if you're a lib, you don't want to talk about the crime in Chicago, which is predominantly gang-related and, and black-on-black violence in the city of Chicago. That's what, it, statistically, that is what it predominantly is comprised of what you want to talk about is police violence. So she launches into this whole thing about police violence and uh, and Laquan McDonald and the shooting and, you know, how there needs to be more review of police tactics. I'm saying more review of police tactics. I asked you about how to stop street violence. I didn't ask you about police brutality, but it just goes to show that that the liberal mentality is always talk about how the cops are the ones who are messing up, how the cops are making mistakes um, don't discuss high crime minority communities, what could be done to help them, to fix them, because that's sensitive, you see. That's sensitive. You don't want to go there. But the liberal mentality is that law enforcement is generally a problem, that law enforcement in this country is soaked with racism and uh, all kinds of unconscious bias, except the FBI, Except the FBI, which we've been told is an organization of only the most 
upstanding and, and wonderful individuals you could ever find at the very top ranks. McCabe and Comey and all the rest of them are just first rate. And anyone who criticizes them is undermining our institutions. They feel that way right now about the FBI. Meanwhile, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, they will compare to the Nazis. I've even seen some very senior former Democrat national security figures who have come out and made similar comparisons about our southern border and the law enforcement agencies that are tasked with securing it with being Nazis, which is just unbelievably irresponsible, terrible stuff for them to say. But this is how they appeal to their base. They understand it. This is how they try to get people fired up about a more socially just future. You know, the, the plan is that essentially they will uh, tear down law enforcement right now that is essential to Trump's plans of securing the border. And in that whole process, they'll make it harder for the president to achieve his goals. And maybe later on, later on, they'll find some means of allowing these agencies, these organizations to regroup. I mean, I can tell you when I talk to Border Patrol, they, they know that the Democrats and even Democrats who are in the Border Patrol know that their parties betrayed them. They know it. People that work for Immigrations and Customs Enforcement do not trust left-wing Democrats when it comes to how to do border enforcement, how to deal with immigration laws, because they know it's become so incredibly politicized. Uh, but to, to start to bring in analogies, comparisons of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement to Nazis, you start to wonder, what is too far for these Democrats? You know, what is the length to which they will not go in order to make some kind of a political point. They, they have been willing to do so much, to lie about the border so much, to say it's not a crisis. You had this ridiculous vote that the president may end up vetoing because there's a lot of Republicans who really specialize in cowardice and surrender, unfortunately. A lot of Republicans out there don't want to have to take a tough vote on this. I really wish the media would stop saying, well, politicians along the border, to, oh, gee, Maybe the illegal immigration from Mexico and Central America that has completely changed the demographics along many of these border districts, maybe that has something to do with why, one, you've got a lot of Democrats now along the border, and two, they are very opposed to the wall. They're very opposed to the wall. Uh, because of the, the identity politics dis breakdown in this country is such that even if you are, you know, in the Latino community, they're constantly told that, Support for the wall is anti-Latino. Meanwhile, if you spend any time at the border, you find out there are Bangladeshis who are coming to the wall now. Or Chinese are coming. People from all over the world are showing up the wall. But the Democrats have been sure to make, have been sure to, to spread the the messaging that Trump wants to build a wall merely to stop people from Latin America from coming into the country. So they have an, an animus toward the wall that is just comes from that. But calling. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, or even even speaking about them as though they they deserve to be talked about the way that the Nazis justified their own atrocities, um, and to say that there's such a dehumanizing effect. I mean, that woman also to call them aliens. That's the, that is the term in law. No one is saying that they're aliens like ET phone home and they're not actually human beings. 
Alien is a legal term for somebody who is not a U.S. citizen who is in the country. Okay, if you are a, you can be a, a, a resident alien, you can be an illegal alien. Illegal aliens are people who are not supposed to be here. I just think that we haven't really figured out, the Trump administration hasn't figured out how they're going to follow through on the promise on immigration yet. I've got to tell you, it's a, it's a disappointment for me up to this point. I wish that Trump had gotten on this earlier and, and also that he had better partners with the Republicans. But, you know, Paul Ryan is, a, is, a, is almost an open borders guy. I mean, he's a whoever wants to come here and work should be able to work. Whoever wants to do it, they should just they should have that totally open to them. And there's no cultural price to pay in this country. Assimilation doesn't matter. Political cohesion doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's all just about making the donor class happy and making the virtue signalers happy by letting anybody who wants to come here come here. So Trump hasn't had good partners on this one, but we got a lot of work to do still in the immigration fight. I think it's going to factor into 2020, but if we don't win 2020, folks, guess what's going to happen? Amnesty. That said, it appears today's hearing topic is well outside our jurisdiction and per House Rule 10 and the reasons I've stated, I would move that we adjourn. All those in favor say aye. 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 All the opposed say no. No. <laughs> the uh, clerk will uh, call the roll. Mr. Chairman, on the motion, the ayes are four and the nays are two. Thank you. The motion passes. The hearing is adjourned. All right. So that's not an exciting soundbite until you know what it's about. And, and even then, it needs a little context. But uh, there was a House Natural Resources Committee subpanel that just yesterday had a mo- was able to get together a motion to adjourn at the very beginning of a hearing on climate change. Now, you might say, Buck, hold on, hold on a second, Buck. Democrats have been telling us now for weeks that climate change is an existential threat. And if we don't do something about climate, if, if we don't do something about climate change, I mean, the world is just going to, like, cease to be the world and, like, that's why you just have to stop all the cow farts and like drive a bicycle or maybe even a tricycle to work and not a car. Uh, people have convinced themselves of this, or at least there's a a contingent of the left that, that believes all this stuff. And the, the the way that I'll just I just got to say this, the way that they will assert because I'm with the scientists, I'm like, I'm sorry, aren't you the you know, men can beat. You know, men and men and women should be able to should compete in the same athletic events as long as the man says he's a woman. Aren't you? Oh, but you're the science people. I see. OK. All right. That's that's a good one to know. Um, but there's all oh, the scientists agree with me. Who are, who are these scientists? I, I'd like these scientists to really sit down. Now, you know, you, you can't even find anywhere a real piece-by-piece assessment, not of what they think is going to happen, but what their predictions have said for the last 20 or 30 years, because they've been wrong every time. They're wrong over and over again. They don't know. But people go, oh, I'm, I'm one of the smart people. I believe that climate change is going to... I've met... Look, I, I sat down with uh, uh, Crystal yesterday. I didn't get to interview him, but you know, Tom Steyer came in, who's a billionaire. He's a hedge fund guy who's made billions of dollars. So he's obviously not stupid. He believes in this climate catastrophe stuff to the, you know, to the, the nth degree. I mean, he, he is all about it, really thinks that the world is in crisis and, and America has to lead in this climate stuff. I mean, this is this is a crazy cult. It is. This is a 
some kind of you know fr- fringe religious belief that all of a sudden has gone mainstream. This is not reasonable stuff to think. No, no one really believes the world's going to end in 12 years, right? Their, their financial planning would dramatically change. Their, their, you know, would you, I mean, think of how many people would quit their jobs. Heck, I, well, I'd keep doing radio because I love this show. But, you know, a lot of things I wouldn't do anymore if I was only the last 12. No one believes this. No one. Are banks changing their lending standards because they're not going to, you know, a 30-year mortgage isn't worth very much if the world's going to be underwater in 10. I mean, this is just so stupid. But it makes more sense when you see the actions the left takes. And that brings me back to this House Natural Resources subpanel, which was adjourned because Democrats weren't even there. Democrats didn't even show up. Um, This is, quote, the seventh oversight hearing related to climate change the majority is holding this month. It's been a bit concerning how this all fits with the within the committee's jurisdiction, Gohmert says. Uh, Louis Gomert says, when it comes to matters of climate change, the House rules explicitly uh, references several topics, topics such as conservation of energy resources, almost anything that has to do with renewable energy. None of these areas fall within the jurisdiction of this committee. Uh, So, you know, they're holding emergency meetings just to hold emergency meetings and then they don't even show up. And that's really where the Democrats, that's where the left is on this climate change issue. It's it's an emergency in theory, it's an emergency, rhetorically speaking. Uh, does anyone really feel like it's an, an imminent threat to them? No, of course not. Oh, of course not. It's uh, completely absurd. I feel badly for anyone who does believe that because they must live a very, uh, very fearful and, and anxiety-filled existence. Uh, but Democrats are telling you, existential crisis, existential threat. But when the House committee on resources has a meeting about climate change they can't even show up so republicans shut it down tells you a lot folks usually in a political debate i can at least understand what the other side is trying to accomplish and i can see my way to understanding at some level how it is that even if they're wrong on this issue they could get to that place of wrongness So I I can understand the basic fallacies that have brought them to this place. And it does not leave me flabbergasted. It doesn't leave me dumbfounded. I can think, okay, I I understand why they think this. They're wrong, but I know why they think this. You know, I I understand the the basics of it. Today on my show, Rising at the Hill, where I have to engage with a uh, very, very, uh, very nice, but very liberal co-host. Um, she's very, uh, very a dear friend, but obviously very, very progressive. Uh, but some of the guests that come in are incredibly left wing, and I have to deal with them, too, and try to be respectful and and deal with them as, as I would want to be treated as a guest on a show. But you will recall the kids that went up to Diane Feinstein and told her about what should be done on climate change. We are trying to ask you to vote yes on the Green New Deal. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have our own Green New Deal. Some scientists have said that we have 12 years to turn this around. Well, it's not going to get turned around in 10 years. 
Yes. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know for the what's people. interesting about this group? It's, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I know what I'm doing. So, you know, maybe people should listen a little bit. I hear what you're saying, but we're the people who voted you. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your job. How old are you? How old I'm 16. I can't vote. vote for me. Any plan that that doesn't take bold, transformative action is not going to be what we need. Well, you know better than I do. So I think one day you should run for the Senate. Great. And then you do it your way. By that time. I, I, I wanted to play it for you. She could hear me. These are little kids. We are terrified about the world ending in 12 years. And, and I, I, you know, they're putting themselves in a, in a position now where we're supposed to, if we have to listen to them, then we're allowed to criticize them. I'm sorry. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's like, but the scientists of the government say. I mean, look, they're little kids. They're little kids. What are they doing? They should be thinking about recess and chocolate chip cookies and, you know, making friends with new people and stuff. Shouldn't be sitting around worrying about the world ending in 10 years. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. And that 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 group that brought them there is called the Sunrise Movement. It is, quote, a movement of young people uniting to stop the climate crisis. This dark hour in America cannot last. Welcome to Sunrise. And and that's from their website. Well, today we had. The founder of the Sunrise Movement come on Hill TV. So the the person who came up with this idea to deploy kids for political purposes, and I don't mean kids as in like, oh, those, you know, youngins in their early 20s. No, 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 no. I mean, eight year olds, 10 year olds, little kids, children. Terrify them with stories of how the world's going to end and then send them out to try to guilt adults into taking positions on incredibly complicated and important national political matters. This is crazy. This I mean, I know you say or rather you say probably I definitely say that the loony left has really gone to new levels recently. But I, I, I had to think that this was. Uh, maybe an anomaly that mostly the Sunrise Movement, this left wing activist group, you know, I, you know, who knows? I got to find out who's funding this thing. But, you know, they, they just got a whole bunch of people arrested. They're bothering Mitch McConnell. I figured this has got to be for young people, but not not explicitly going after the politicization of little kids. Right. That's just too weird. That's crazy. Nobody would do that because it's not fair. It's not right to fill little kids' heads with this kind of propaganda. It's child abuse to tell kids that the world's going to end in 10 years. I mean, if they really believe that, then they would change the whole trajectory of their lives. And only morons believe this. All right, don't, don't be bullied into this. The world is not going to end in 10 or 12 years. Only idiots believe this. Only people of very weak minds with very poor intellectual capacity believe this. A lot of people who are otherwise very smart and crafty, will say it. They'll say it because it's a way of manipulating the stupid. But nobody who knows anything believes that that is the case. But of course, when you're talking about eight-year-olds, they're going to believe what the adults tell them, right? So could this movement really be about mobilizing little kids 
in order to try and guilt or bully adults into crazy and completely unrealistic political action on climate change? Uh, The answer is yes. I asked the Sunrise Movement co-founder today, Varshini Prakash, what do you think about this? And I just want to play for you. This was just from this morning, 16. Do you think that's responsible for little kids to really think that the world is going to end in 10 years? Well, what I would say is that I think people are... um, recognizing and are like viscerally responding to the fact that young people might be sentient, intelligent beings who actually understand what's going on. Do you think 10-year-olds understand politics? I think 10-year-olds understand that climate change is a serious... You think they understand the science behind climate change? I think that they actually do. Do you think that people should pay attention to the politics of kids that don't actually know how to, in many cases, read books above a fourth grade level? I honestly think that young people today are extremely intelligent and understand intuitively that the climate crisis is a serious threat. Should 10-year-olds be able to vote? I mean, it seems like those are pretty intelligent beings. I don't know the answer to that question. I asked the founder of a, of a, a left-wing movement with... Uh, you know, chapters all across the country now. They're storming congressional offices, making all this noise. And they're and they're they're trying to get your kids, folks. They're trying to brainwash your children. That is what they want to do. They want to use the schools to do it. They want to use the media to do it. They want to convince little kids the world's going to end in 10 years. I asked the founder of the movement. You heard it. Do you think that little kids, eight, nine, 10 years old, understand the science behind climate change hysteria and she says yes they're smart i asked the founder of this movement should 10 year olds do you remember what you were like when you were 10 um i remember just trying to you know sneak my hand in the cookie jar when mom wasn't looking and running around in like onesie pajamas with star wars on them and trying to watch movies i mean the, the She thinks that, or at least she wouldn't say that 10-year-olds shouldn't be able to vote. She thinks that 10-year-olds are really smart. And, I mean, it's so, so stupid. But this is the the, the problem. These people, and and this was, you know, I I reached out to producer Mike right after this interview because I knew he'd appreciate this. It's like I was talking to somebody who was in Hamas. It's like I was talking to somebody who was... You know, uh, a Bolshevik at the at the early stages of the 20th century. I mean, a, a, a radical. Put your politics aside for a second. You think the 10 year olds have political wisdom? You think that we should listen to well, where else should we listen to 10 year olds? Well, you know, what, what, what should what should the top marginal tax rate be? Should we go to war? Let's ask some 10 year olds. I mean, the Green New Deal would affect trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars of economic output. It would essentially evaporate it. It would take it away. It would be immensely wasteful, slow down productivity, hurt our quality of life, and it wouldn't even do anything. It's really just about a status takeover of the entirety of the American economy. But I I put all that aside for a second. How do you have a conversation with somebody? How do you have a conversation with someone who thinks that 10-year-olds are wise when it comes to politics? You know, I was a precocious 10-year-old. I had a pretty big vocabulary. I thought I was, I was pretty 
smart for a 10-year-old. I mean, I was a little, you know, a, a little booger-eating nerd at, at 10 years old. I mean, this is just insane. Absolutely insane. But this is a movement. It's not just one person. They're building this movement. They're getting national media coverage. They're sending the old practically toddlers to go say, I'm scared of the climate change in the 12 years. And we're going to. And, and they think that I'm supposed to listen to these people. Look, here's the problem. They got away with this crap with the Stoneman Douglas kids. Oh, they're victims. And, you know, they listen. OK, well, they're kids. They don't they don't really know anything. They can't vote. I mean, some of them can, some of them can't, but they they don't have any wisdom. They don't have any policy knowledge. I don't care what they think. How dare you? They're victims. And this is the youth. This is the future. But the left loves and this stretches. This is why they're this is their approach in public schools. By the way, this is also why they want universal uh, pre-K child care. So that they can get the state apparatus at your kid as soon as possible to brainwash them with all this nonsense as soon as possible. But the left likes to mobilize the youth because the youth are full of emotion and the sense of their own importance and promise and do not have wisdom or experience to draw upon. Wisdom and experience are important things when you're thinking about governance when you're dealing with the complex political systems of a country of 320 million people with the largest and most powerful military in the history of the universe. I think wisdom and experience, these are matters that these are issues that should come to the forefront and not just this is our future. But it was like speaking to a radical today. Notice how she wasn't even shy about it. She didn't even step back from Questions like, should 10-year-olds be able to vote? If a 10-year-old should be able to vote, I would just want to know, should a 5-year-old be able to vote? Would the left be comfortable indoctrinating 3-year-olds into just walking into a voting booth and taking their little, their little stubby finger and pushing it, up, uh, pushing it against the screen to press D for Democrat? I think we all know the answer is yes. They simply don't care. There's no principle at work for them here. The, the notion of being a citizen who has enough life experience and the knowledge that comes with it to at least have fully formed judgments. I mean, your, your brain is not even fully formed until adulthood. They've done all kinds of studies on this. It, 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 teenagers are unable to see and unable to assess the long-term consequences of their actions the same way that adults can. Right? This is why impulsive teen behavior is something that parents have to rein in. It's also why parenting is so important and why the one thing that no one seems to want to talk about in this country is that a lot of the problems we have stem from a lack of parents and bad parenting. But instead, here we have, let's propagandize, let's politicize little kids. Uh, there are some places where I just, I, I cannot see, I cannot see common ground with the other side. I do not think that they have an argument. I do not think that they have a point of view that is worthy of respect. The notion that 10-year-old kids should be lecturing adults on climate change because they've been terrified because they must believe, why wouldn't they, the adults who are telling them that the world is going to end in 10 years. Uh, anyone who believes that, I do not respect on this issue. They are wrong. They are flatly wrong. This is, this is nuts. 
organizing kids in this way for this purpose is exploitation, full stop. You know, if parents want to teach their kids about politics, that's fine. You want to come together with some nationwide activist group that's going to frighten little children and then mobilize them and use them in youth marches. This is an embarrassment. And if the left had any shame, they would recognize that. So when we stood up Hill TV, we need to get the best people fast. And it's not an easy process, right? You need to get very specific qualified candidates in and time is money right so you want to do this as quickly as you can as efficiently as you can and that's why i went with the best possible option here ziprecruiter.com slash buck all right ziprecruiter.com slash buck lets you hire the best people because ziprecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards and they don't stop there they've got incredible powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job as applications come in ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights top candidates you're never going to miss a great match all right right now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address ziprecruiter.com slash buck that's zip Recruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. It's a little hard to understand what's happened psychologically uh, to the Democratic Party that you could have so, such a lockstep group of people. I think all but three of the Democratic senators voted in effect to allow the killing of babies who are already born. I mean, this is just pure infanticide in a way which is unthinkable in most of the world. On almost every front, they now feel compelled to rush to the most extreme positions, even if they're crazy. Uh, Somebody said the other day that they've now become literally the party of death and taxes. To have every Democratic presidential candidate vote that it's okay to kill babies after they're born uh, puts them in such a small minority I don't quite see how they think they're going to create a winning campaign. This issue is not going away anytime soon, and it shouldn't go away anytime soon, even though the Democrats, including the Democrat presidential candidates thus far, who are in favor of a a legal opening for infanticide, that is what they have that is what they have cast their vote in favor of this week. No matter what they tell you, that is what they have done. But the Democrat media, which is unfortunately a vast majority of the media, is going to run cover for them. Interesting that uh, my, my friend Ben Dominich over at The Federalist did some searches. And as of, the, as, as of today in the afternoon, I haven't been able to check since I went on air, but just the fact that this was true as of 1 o'clock Eastern time today, uh, neither CNN, MSNBC, or NBC News had run a single story about how Democrats blocked a Republican effort in the Senate to pass a bill that would criminalize for doctors, not for mothers, the practice of infanticide, you know, the killing of a baby outside the womb. None of them found that to be a story worth reporting on. None of them thought that this was something that maybe deserved any attention. Uh, We are going to continue to follow this story here because this is not uh, aberrant. This is not something that just happened out of nowhere. The truth is that the Democrats have embraced 
abortion extremism in a way that I think even many on the left would have found absolutely appalling five or ten years ago. Um, Not everyone. I mean, a lot of Democrats have known that this was really their position. They just wouldn't say it. But I think some Democrats now have an unease. I can't tell you what what number, what percentage, but I've been speaking to some Democrats that I know, and they understand that if the American people really figure out just how extreme the left is on the issue of abortion, that there will be a reckoning. In fact, there's some polling data from the last few months to show that the trend is toward pro-life, strongly toward pro-life. And a vast majority of the American people opposes third trimester abortion period opposes it period you know the the only time that you and then they say well, what about life of the, uh, life of the mother exception well yeah the same polling shows that you know they they are open to the exception of life of the mother but any other reason no and that's a strong majority of the american people but you won't get that from the media they don't want you to know this because look the mainstream media has been complicit in supporting and taking money from Planned Parenthood and its donors and all the rest of it for decades. Uh, They have blood on their hands here, folks. I want to tell you a quick story about a professor at Harvard Law School, Ronald S. Sullivan Jr. He is a faculty dean of Winthrop House. He is the first black man to serve in such a position at Harvard. He also directs Harvard's Criminal Justice Institute and trial advocacy workshop. He, in 2008, advised the Senate campaign of uh, Barack Obama on criminal justice, and he represented Mike Brown in the Mike Brown City of Ferguson matter and has done a lot of work on criminal justice more broadly. So, you know, it, it is a fair, a fair thing to guess that Ronald Sullivan, tenured professor at Harvard Law School, African-American, Uh, and social justice and just general justice reform advocate would be somebody who you would think that Democrats would not just be okay with, but would celebrate, right? It seems you read his bio. I see this piece here on Reason.com by Robbie Suave, works right through his, his backstory. But it turns out that the professor is in a tough spot right now. In fact, Many black students at Harvard are organizing to demand that he be fired. Why, you might ask, would a tenured and esteemed African-American professor of law at Harvard University, the number one or number two, depending on who you ask, law school in terms of admissions difficulty in the United States, why would African-American students want him to be gone? What terrible misdeed would he be guilty of? Is it a me too violation of some kind is there any kind of sexual misconduct at issue on his part no did he say something horrifyingly un-pc no what you find out when you read this article and this has started to get some traction in the news and this is astonishing stuff is that there are students at harvard law school who wants a professor to be fired from his job because Professor Sullivan is representing Harvey Weinstein as his attorney. Oh, okay. So you mean that now the social justice left 
has gone so far as to undermine our system of legal representation so that if you represent somebody as their defense attorney, you are now essentially tainted by that person's sins. So if you fall to the wrong side of the social justice left, and look, Harvey Weinstein's a total dirtbag and he deserves whatever he gets, but defense attorneys exist for a reason. Right? We are supposed to have a justice system that has oppositional forces at work to bring out the best and most just outcome. Right? There, there's, a, there's a reason that it exists in this way. And for law students at Harvard Law School not to understand this, in fact, to go so far against this that they want him to be fired. And uh, you even have the Association of Black Harvard Women saying that he must go because this is trauma inducing, they say. Not only are these students a bunch of babies, but you also notice how utterly totalitarian they are in their instinct here, which is to get rid of somebody that they don't that they disagree with. Fire him. He should be fired. There is a completely legitimate, I would even argue, compelling reason within our system for there to be legal representation, robust legal representation for the accused. People in law school who are concerned with justice matters in general should know this. But at Harvard, it's more important to virtue signal. And this is what I've been saying for a long time. Not only have these schools been infiltrated by this leftist and statist groupthink, uh, but they're becoming increasingly less impressive places because their primary reason for existing is the propagation of the uh, mythology around uh, diversity as the ultimate strength of all these institutions and the, the, the pretense that these elite academies, places like Harvard, are just supposed to be creating the social justice leadership of tomorrow. I thought they were supposed to educate the smartest people in the country. They don't do that anymore at a lot of these places. At least only some of the people they educate are really smart. A lot of them are not very impressive, including a bunch of law students at Harvard, apparently. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. That one... That one's got a little kick to it. I like that one. Uh, Tino, we're going to get right into roll call today. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Do not forget CPAC. I'll be there tomorrow, Thursday, and I'll be there on Friday. So I'll be speaking Friday morning and moderating a panel Friday evening. But just if you wander the ground at CPAC, look out for the swoop at the Gaylord National Convention Center in Maryland, just outside of D.C., at the Conservative Political Action Conference. I will be there. All right, Tino writes on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Hey, Buck, I spoke with Mark Levin yesterday and wrote up for him a short list of points and issues as they relate to Denmark and the Democrats posturing in regard to free health care, etc. I was born there and left my business there for a reason. If you shoot me an email, I will send it to you as you may find some of the facts and talking points useful in the coming debates. Tino, I will send you an email right now. Actually, I can just tell you officialteambuck at gmail.com. Uh, Brandon, 
Hey, Buck, great show on Venezuela yesterday. I've been helping out a friend of a friend in Venezuela, a single mom of two girls for the past year. Yesterday, we sent over the counter medicine, uh, common over the counter medicines and tooth care items that are impossible to obtain in Venezuela, along along with the antibiotics to kill the parasites that she and her two children have due to the bad water. My friend's brother owns a shipping company based out of Miami and is able to personally deliver the items to this single mom. My friends tells me uh, tell me that my wife, my friend tells sorry, my friend tells my wife that for dinner the girls are getting sugar water. They are desperate. My friend is a legal immigrant from Venezuela and a strong uh, strong Trump supporter. Please, everyone, keep these people in your prayers. Take care, brother. Airborne all the way. Well, Brandon, it's a very kind and very Christian thing you're doing to help out this this woman in need. It certainly illustrates the degree of uh, economic desperation and the amount of uh, despair that is spreading across and has been for a long time across Venezuela in a world where there could be so much abundance. And in the case of Venezuela, given its oil reserves, there should be there should be so much abundance. Um, I just think it's important for us to keep in mind that this is uh, the result of bad decision-making by people in power. Bad decision-making by people in power, for sure. David writes, take the pain, platoon. Indeed, David. I'm assuming you listened on podcast delayed, because otherwise, if you listened to the show yesterday, you would know the answer, and it's not fun to say the answer if you know it. No, no, not fun. It's like, I remember I used to do this in the earliest days of my media career, we would do this website trivia night at a, a couple of local bars in New York. And if I remember, I think BuzzFeed was there and Gawker was there and some of these real left wing sites. But I got invited and I was young and I was young and naive and I would go. And I always thought it was amazing that some people would really actively try to listen in to what the other teams were saying on trivia night to cheat. Who cheats on trivia night? I mean, the, the, the prize was like another round of beers, you know? I just don't understand. Some people, it doesn't make any sense to me. John writes, as a fan of all your accents, I got to say your Trey Gowdy sounds more like Bill Cosby than anything. Well, John, I have to say I disagree. I think my Trey Gowdy sounds a lot more like Trey Gowdy. But I'm going to have to stop because some of you really don't like the Trey Gowdy. I, and I, I look... I don't like strawberry ice cream. I don't I don't mean I don't like it compared to other ice creams. I mean, if I'm really in the mood for ice cream and all there is is strawberry, I'm, I'm not going to not going to touch it. I don't want any of that stuff. You know, I'm a chocolate guy. Number one, vanilla. Number two, strawberry is not even list. Brandon, the important question. What is the best flavor of ice cream? Go. Uh, vanilla, but I feel. Are like you, you dude? Really? You're gonna you're gonna, you're gonna come up with vanilla? <laughs> a guy who has a podcast about Guns and Roses is gonna tell me his favorite ice cream is vanilla with sprinkles. I do. I mean, I have the palate of a ten year old. Unless those sprinkles are like laced with LSD, man. A lot of people <laughs> right now are like, "What is going on?" I, w- I would have thought you'd be like a Ben and Jerry's. You know, Chunky Monkey, Rocky Road, one of those. One oh, of those simple things. man. I don't get a say here. What's that? I didn't even do it. Usually you're talking to the ladies across the hall. <laughs> I don't know. Are you even there right now? Look yeah, at that. we were talking about oh. ice cream. That's what we were talking about. Oh, produ- oh, producer Mike. He came to play today. <laughs> producer Mike, what is the best ice cream flavor? Oh, man. Uh, it's a three-way tie for me. Well, technically, this would be a five-way tie because it's uh, mint chocolate chip, Haagen-Dazs, 
uh, Dolce de Leche Hagen does. And then I love the, uh, what's the name of the uh, vanilla chocolate strawberry altogether? I don't know what that is. It's the... Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Smorgasbord? I don't know. Yeah, there's a name for it. It's the... Um, I will tell you, your Dolce de Leche call on Haagen-Dazs yeah. is, a, is a good one. Yeah. That is, that is a standout flavor in the Haagen-Dazs it's canon. It's really good. And, and I'm also a mint chocolate chip fan, always and, and, and at all times. But I, if I could only have one ice cream the rest of my life, the correct answer is pistachio. I love pistachio. I've never is had a, it. What? Yeah. Producer Mike, me neither. Get your get your bougie ice creamness on, and go get yourself some like Brooklyn hipster pistachio small batch ice cream. You'll be all about it. This reminds me, we should get an ice cream sponsor on the show. I'm all all about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right. So, you, but you had some good ones there, Brandon. At least you threw the sprinkles in. I appreciate. <laughs> it. Oh, it's a uh, uh, Napolitan. Napolitan. Neapolitan. Yeah, Neapolitan. Is that it? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. I've, I've never even. I was heard trying it. to look it up real quick, and I was uh, fumbling there, but I couldn't. That that here's what I do with the Neapolitan. <laughs> this is this is, the, this is what I call the Fat Boy Special. I get the Neapolitan ice cream. I get a couple of waffles, and I heat up the waffles, and I make a ice cream sandwich on waffles. Try it. It's delicious. I mean, that does. I will say that does sound good. It sounds a little bit like uh, becoming. You know, pre-diabetic overnight, but it is. It does sound good. Oh yeah, ne- yeah. Neapolitan ice cream. I have never even heard of this. Uh, it is separate blocks of vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry together. Look at you, dude. You've you're never you're, had that? you're teaching me things about ice cream. Yeah, I've had that since I was a kid. I can also teach you how to put it on ten pounds real quick if you want. Oh my god. Well, I, unfortunately, I don't need any help with that. But conversation for another time. Back into the roll call here for a moment, folks. Richard writes: We need to break the engine of the world, Buck. Every day, the stuff I see and hear keeps taking me back to a movie series I saw a while back. Atlas Shrugged is the name. If you haven't seen it, I'd suggest you do. Uh, Richard, I have not seen the movie. I'm certainly familiar with Ayn Rand's books. And I heard the Atlas Shrugged movie was kind of meh, but I'm willing, to, I'm willing to give it a shot if you tell me it's good. Sean writes, uh-oh, I knew this was coming. Love you like a brother. But your but your Gaudi impression sounds like a Frank Caliendo impression of John Madden doing an impression of the Swedish chef. So you're gonna get in a shotgun formation. You're gonna throw a long bomb in the end zone. It kind of kind of works actually. Look at that. All right, all right, Sean. I know I got I got to put the tray the tray Gaudi away. People are not as I mean my Bernie is amazing because I'm from New York City, so we all understand. Like I got the burn. I feel the burn twenty four seven. That didn't that didn't sound right. That's not that's not the image that we wanted to come up with. Um, but I, I do have a good Bernie Sanders impression, which is important. I, I think it's important. James writes the movie quote. You didn't know. I should have been more clear. Now you know what I do for a living. You should have waited. I was worth it. Is from the Expendables. This was a quote someone else mentioned, not the platoon quote. I knew that one too. Great show, regardless, James. Well, James, you are the Quote, expert extraordinaire. Uh, I have never seen The Expendables, so I can't I can't speak to it. A movie that is a send up of all action movies. I don't know. It, it seemed a little too contrived for me, but I know they made a second one, so it must have made money. David. Hey, Buck. I was flipping through the Fios menu tonight and saw the Trump dynasty listed on A&E pretty much all night. I don't remember them seeing uh, them run a Clinton or Bush dynasty back in the day. They come at this guy at every angle. They're definitely failing. Living in VA, 
North, Virginia, Northam, Fairfax and Herring are helping the conservative cause. The further they dig in, the more we benefit. Uh, take care, Dave. You know, Dave, none of those three Democrats, none of those three Democrats are going to resign. And I've thought that for a while, but it is it's pretty remarkable when you when you get down to it, that not one of them is going to have to step down when you when you see how Democrats deal with the opposition, how Democrats uh, treat Republicans that are enmeshed in a scandal, whether there's any merit to it or not. Obviously, there's a different standard at work here. I don't know if it'll really help at the national level. I mean, people people don't spend as much time thinking about how evil many Democrats are as I'd like. But there you have it. Uh, Danessa writes, hey, Buck, I'm new to the team, but I found myself looking forward to listening to your show every night. I was wondering if you could give a shout out to my brother, Dakota. He is up and coming as a singer songwriter, and you can find him on Instagram and Facebook under Dakota Sailor, S-A-Y-L-O-R music. Shields high. Keep up the good work. Well, Danessa, asking ye shall receive. First of all, welcome to the team. Great to have you listening. Thank you so much for joining Team Buck. Honor and a privilege joining your uh, fellow patriots across the country. And as for uh, Dakota, that's great. Uh, we wish him all the best of luck. Instagram and Facebook, Dakota Sailor, guys. You can go check him out. I'll check him out. We'll see if he's good. If he's really good, maybe we can have him do some you know, intro music for the show. That'd be kind of fun. It'd be fun to get that going. Um, we'll have to check it out. You know, my college roommates were in a band. That was interesting. Stories for another time. John, right? Shields, hi, Buck. To be honest, your Bill Cosby sounds a lot more like Bill Cosby. I mean, you're sorry. Your Trey Gowdy sounds a lot more like Bill Cosby. Darn it. Now that a couple of you have independently said this, it makes me think that maybe my Trey Gowdy does sound more like Bill Cosby. Your jello pudding pops. I, I, I've never thought that I really had a Cosby. And, you know, I never really watched the Cosby show either. Um can't can't say that I was I was a, a watcher of the Cosby show of all the I spent too much time in my youth probably watching TV, which maybe comes across during the show. I read a lot of books, too, though. All right. Going to close up shop tonight. Be sure to come find me at CPAC Thursday and Friday. I'll be wandering around. I'll be the guy with the swoop. You know what that means. Talk to you tomorrow, team. Shields high. If you need background checks done for your business, you need to make sure you check out my friend's Global Verification Network. The CEO, Mark Buckman, is a buddy of mine, and this guy is a veteran, a patriot, and somebody that you can trust. And background checks are essential to making sure that you bring in people that you can trust to work for you. A lot of the other background check organizations out there, a lot of people that do background investigations and vetting, they'll send it overseas, they'll outsource it, they'll even park the sensitive data that you give them on servers that aren't even on U.S. soil. Don't go with any of that stuff. Call my friends at Global Verification Network. 877-695-1179 is the number. Again, Global Verification Network, 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned.